0: A Highline Podcast.
1: Hello, welcome to the Whiskey Bench. I'm Steven Torna.
0: I'm Cat Dwyer.
1: We have a very exciting episode this evening. Um, We are thrilled to have our first official proper guest on the whiskey bench, Todd Myers. Todd is the director of the Center for Environment at the Washington Policy Center and author of the forthcoming book, Time to Think Small, How Nimble Environmental Technologies Can Solve the Planet's Biggest Problems. Todd, honestly, it is so good to have you on. We're excited to have this conversation. For a long time on Twitter and everything like that, we've been aware of what you've been doing and we've listened to your TED Talks and all of that. And you're doing some really interesting, cool stuff. Um, So we obviously want to, this evening, dive into your book, get into a little bit of the nitty gritty, talk policy, talk government. But first, we got to discuss the cocktail this evening. You were kind enough to recommend the Bee's Knees, which is a great classic cocktail. It's from like the 1920s prohibition era. It comes out of Paris. Pretty simple, delicious. Two ounces of gin, three quarters of an ounce of lemon juice, and three quarters of an ounce of honey syrup. Shake it up, garnish it with a lemon twist, or in Todd's case, beautiful honeycombs from his very own beehive. So I think that uh, can get us right into the first question I have for you. You're a beekeeper. Yeah. What ignited this passion in you?
2: Uh, so yeah, I actually, um, I have about five hives, uh, just not very many. I'm just a hobbyist, but I have a couple of them on a farm and then three of them on my property here. Um, and I've been doing it for about nine years, so not too long, but long enough. And the way, the reason I got interested is my sister who lives in Michigan, um, worked on a flower farm and they had hives and she- um, would occasionally help them out and she would tell me how cool they were. Um, and frankly, I got tired of my sister telling me how awesome it was. Um, so I decided to start doing it. So the easy answer of why I got into beekeeping is sibling rivalry. Um, but I, <laughs> I, I, I do like it. I mean, it's, you know, it, the honey is great, but that's not why I do it. I just think that they're fascinating and I always learn something from them. And beehives and bees are so interesting. Um, and they are, so I used them as a metaphor in my book, which we'll talk about, but that's why I do it. And, and, you know, people think I'm a little odd for having a hobby that, um, requires me to get stung about 10 times a year. Nonetheless, I really enjoy it.
1: Well, that seems, I don't know if someone asked me with five hives, how many times you would get stung in a year? I would have probably guessed more than 10. (laughs) So I, I don't know. That doesn't seem bad and maybe that's a bit of of a a misunderstanding with bees. Um is it well, cr- I mean they're pretty gentle creatures.
2: Yeah, it's remarkable. Um so I had um my neighbors come over because they're like they're really interested in the bees and so I had them come over. Um and often I will uh, open up the hives without gloves because if it's a sunny day um and the bees are busy, they don't as long as you're not shaking them up, they don't really mm-hmm. care about you. They got work to do. Um and so I often won't use smoke. I, will, I won't use gloves. I always put a veil on because, you know, it only takes one bee to be unhappy and getting stung in the face is not fun. Um right. But right. If I get stung in the hand. It's, it's okay. But I would say pretty rarely do I get stung even um, when I don't wear gloves and those sorts of things because people don't realize that you know what you're doing and you sort of have a sense of the bees. They're not going to bother you if you don't bother them.
0: Right on. That's great.
1: Beautiful. It's exciting. (laughs) I've known quite a few people now that have gotten into it and they've only spoke great things about it. And it's always they're always like, you should just try, you know, come check out what we're doing. And if you want, it's, you know, we'll we'll help you set up a hive. And so maybe someday that would be a phenomenal, uh, I think, experiment to to be a part of. So, it's really
2: easy. I mean, they have yeah. lived for a very long time without us.
1: So, <laughs> right, exactly.
2: If, if, if you don't want to do much and if you want to keep bees, they'll pretty much take care of themselves. So it's pretty easy.
1: That's so good to hear. So I want to dive into just a few more background questions before we get into the nitty gritty. Um, right now you're in the Washington area. It's beautiful. It's an amazing state. I mean, the coast is incredible, all of this. But have you always lived there? Where did you grow up?
2: So I grew up when I was very young. We lived in the San Francisco Bay Area, but then we moved up to Washington State um, to Redmond. <clears throat> and when I grew up in Redmond, there were farms and forests and all sorts of things. By the time we started, I ran cross country in high school, and we would run on trails and forests and things like that. And by the time I was a senior, all of that was Microsoft. So oh wow. <laughs> that's where I grew Times up. Times have changed.
0: <laughs> yeah, it was
2: it was a lot of change very quickly. Um but yeah, so I've lived in Washington state basically all my life. Um I lived in the Seattle area. We we moved and we kind of live in the mountains now, which is great. I love it. Um we have we see deer basically every day. There's a herd of about 20 elk that passed through our yard the other day and um Lovely. so you know, I, I liked living in the Seattle area and doing those sorts of things, but working in the environment and wanting to have bees on my own property, I mm-hmm. decided it was good to get closer to nature.
1: Well, wonderful. So it sounds like your whole life you've been at least somewhat connected with, with nature. I mean, being a runner, running and seeing a lot of terrain, and then obviously enjoying the mountains and where you live now. I'm sure this all led into it, but what really drew you to pursue environmental policy? like you do now?
2: So I actually ran political campaigns. um, And so I ran a campaign in 2000. Washington State, we elect a position called Commissioner of Public Lands, who manages millions of acres of state lands. And so I um, ran that campaign and we won. And so uh, the, uh, the new commissioner took me down to Olympia. And I frankly didn't know a lot about environmental policy Uh, When I went, I knew how to run campaigns. So I went to work for the State Department of Natural Resources, and I spent a year walking around in forests with foresters and biologists and others. And I remember about, I don't know, toward the end of my first year there, I sort of stopped and talked to a forester and said, you know, the things you tell me, I don't ever hear in the public. I don't hear in the press. I don't hear politicians say them. I mean, what you're telling me is really interesting stuff. Yeah. about managing forests and ecosystems and all this sort of stuff. And he goes, oh, yeah, no. Yeah, that none of that stuff is, is actually what happens in the forest and what we do. And I was just like, this is incredible. I love this, <laughs> that it's so interesting. Um, there's so much that goes on. And yet the political discussion about how we manage the environment it was so detached from what the scientists and the people on the ground said. And from that moment, I was hooked. So that was, you know, 22, 21 years ago, um, and I'm still here. And, and that is what really um, drives me is, is that you constantly are learning new things. You're constantly finding out really interesting and counterintuitive things about the environment. Um, it's why I got into, I mean, it's, it means part of what we made. Get into beekeeping is just because that that same sort of sense of learning and wonder and watching nature and it's just it's it's really exciting so but that's how i initially got into it
0: well you're doing a real service by helping kind of bridge that gap between the political rhetoric we hear surrounding environmental policy and then the actual facts of the research and the data behind you know what's actually happening in the environment so that's that's important work, and this is sort of my my fun question for you Todd uh because I think we I think you you might share some of our our leanings that we have here on the whiskey bench in terms of uh our disdain for uh bad Even- government policy. Oh,
2: I thought you meant <laughs> evening drinking, but yes, also that as well <laughs>
0: evening drinking yes. yes we we check that box um but I'm just curious because you must have an example of this what's sort of the most like egregious example, in your opinion, of government policy meant to help the environment that has actually ultimately hurt the environment.
2: So my favorite example of sort of policy that backfired and how detached that is from the public um, is a lot of research I did on green buildings. So there's a the US Green Building Council has a system called LEED, leadership in energy and environmental design. And Washington state decided that all new school buildings would be built to lead building standards. So I looked at it and uh, they and I was in a committee hearing in the legislature and the environmental community was pushing and said, you know, there's a new lead building that was built in Tacoma that is saving 40% of energy compared to what it would have been. Now, if you know anything about buildings and energy and all this and 40% is a lot. That is a that's big a lot. statement.
1: <laughs> that is uh, a huge statement. I'm a builder. My trade is right. construction and house building. And uh, yes, that's a bold statement.
2: <laughs> yeah, is, you know, we're constantly improving because of technology, but those those improvements are incremental. They're not, you know, 40%. So anyway, so I, uh, I said, oh, that's really interesting. So I did a disclosure request. And what I found was is that there were two buildings, two middle schools built in Tacoma the same year one with the green standards and one without. And what I got the utility data and I found that the green building used 30% more energy per square (laughs) foot than the non- Of course. Naturally. So I went to the legislature and I told them this um, and I had said this before, so they were ready. So the uh, advocates said, oh yeah, 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 yeah. We looked at it. Uh, but we installed the wrong equipment and next year you're going to see it come online. It's going to, it's going to be fixed next year. Well, I thought it was ironic that the school that they'd been highlighting, they now admitted was actually doing worse. But uh, of course the legislature went and passed the bill despite my uh, information. So I went back the next year um, to look at the data, even though the bill had passed because I have a memory and I'm vindictive. Um, So (laughs) I got the data and it, in fact, was doing better. It was now only using 25% more energy uh, than the non-green building. So, I mean, Uh and, and I did research in Washington, New Mexico, Nevada, North Carolina, Colorado. In all of these states, I looked at several districts and I saw this again and again. But the most interesting sort of story was in Spokane where I found this and a reporter called me, uh, the environmental report, or uh, excuse me, the education reporter for the spokesman review, called me and said, this is really interesting. Tell me about this. And so I, I told him and he did a story. Uh, he, he was, you know, took the interview and then he calls me back about half an hour later. And he says, I have a real problem, Todd. The, I called the Spokane School District to ask them what they thought. And they said, they've never heard of you. You have never made, you never requested the data. And that your numbers are all made up. Where did you get your numbers? And to show you how long ago this was, I said, okay, I will fax you over what the school district faxed me. (laughs) So, back, for those who don't remember, when you faxed something, you would put a cover sheet on to say, here's what's about to follow. Here's how many pages and other things like that. So, I included that and I faxed it to the reporter. And the reporter called me back almost immediately and said, you're not going to believe this. The person who told me he has never heard of you is the one who signed the cover sheet.
0: (laughs) For Christ's sakes. (laughs) Right. Yes.
2: So the punchline of that, though, is that when the story came out, the reporter didn't mention the fact that the school district had lied, had said that these numbers were wrong. I mean, that... I mean, the fact that they denied that they'd ever heard from me and then were forced to admit that, in fact, these numbers were correct, seems like it should have been part of the story. But this is why we don't hear the full story sometimes is because if you're an environment, if you're an education reporter and you have a choice between Todd Myers and the school district, you're going to Mm -hmm. choose.
0: Right. So he
2: wrote the story. But he didn't want to turn the knife on the school district, even though they had blatantly lied to him. So that, I think, is a challenge as to how we get information and what information is left out when we hear about environmental issues. So that was kind of a long answer to your question. But I think it is emblematic of so many of the problems that we have in the environment, which is that politicians make decisions because they want to look good not because the results are there and the media often doesn't expose it because it's not always in their interests
0: right you know and that actually that story kind of exemplifies a theme that we often hit on here at the whiskey bench which is that you know people are people are motivated by their own self-interest and no one individual has a monopoly on truth right and so when we can democratize knowledge um, and sharing that knowledge, mm-hmm. uh, we more quickly can get to, to actual truth or at least to, to good ideas. And I think I think your beekeeping, you kind of hinted at this earlier, your beekeeping sort of serves as a metaphor for this book and sort of your work more broadly. Um, so I would, I, I'd love to hear a little bit about how that beekeeping inspired this book in particular.
2: Well, I think it, it serves as a metaphor um, for the way that we solve, the way that we should solve environmental problems. So when we're seeking truth, you know, I, people will often say, well, it's my truth or your truth, right? And I, I right. sort of hate <laughs> that because I it, Which it's, is dangerous. Very, it's very nihilist in a lot of yeah. ways. But in other yeah. ways, it, it does make sense. Everybody's circumstances are unique and different. And one size fits all environmental policies often don't work because of that diversity, because everybody is different um, and everybody has different circumstances. And that's what I like about environmental technology and the small environmental technologies that we have is that it is so adaptable. And that's what you see in a hive is, is that when bees are born for the first few weeks of their life, they do a variety of different jobs in the hive. And what's interesting is, is that they kind of know what needs to get done. If they see things that aren't getting done, they will switch jobs uh, to do those sorts of things. And then later in their life, they will go out and then they will collect nectar or water or pollen, again, based on what they need. If there's a lot of, if the queen is laying a lot of eggs, they will collect a lot of pollen because that's what they feed um, to the larva. Um, if they're getting ready for winter, they'll, as, they'll collect as much nectar as they can. But it's very adaptable to the circumstances. And every little bee does a very tiny job and collects, you know, a, a fraction of a teaspoon of honey in its entire life. But the aggregate impact of all of that work and all of those things make the hive very durable, very lasting. And you see, uh, beehives have survived everywhere from the Middle East to Alaska and North Dakota. North Dakota is the number one honey state in the country. People would not imagine that. Oh, wow. As cold as it that, is. Yeah. But wow. yeah that's how adaptable bees are because they have this approach, because the bees themselves are adaptable, and because the, the work that they do of the 50,000 bees that are in a hive adds up to make them very durable and strong. And that's what we want durable and strong environmental policy not environmental policy that is contingent on the whims of politicians or the next election.
0: Right. And that's a dangerous, that's a dangerous trap that we often fall into, that we, we rely on politicians to put forth policy to solve these problems. And then it can be undone, especially increasingly as sort of Congress abdicates its responsibility yeah. and everything's done through executive action. Right. It can very easily be undone with the next administration. Um, so your book is sort of full of these incredible examples of of sort of um, private actors and, and, um, you know, sort of small scale innovation that to your point about the bees in aggregate has a a large impact. What what are some of your favorite examples of kind of tech innovation from the book?
2: Well, I think the best example in my book of that aggregate impact is a group called Plastic Bank. So ocean plastic is a growing concern, right? Lots of plastic going into the ocean. Um, It doesn't photodegrade. It doesn't biodegrade. It lasts a very long time. Um, it can cause all sorts of problems. Um, plus, we just don't want pollution in the ocean. So the United Nations uh, recently signed uh, an agreement that they're going to work together to find a solution. Well, I think we know how long that's going to take. Or mm-hmm. It's not going to be very effective. And especially since the problem of ocean plastic is primarily a problem of developing countries. It's not the United States. It is the Philippines, it is Sri Lanka, it is Haiti, Brazil. I mean, those sorts of the countries because they don't have good trash collection. Sri Lanka puts about five times as much plastic and garbage into the ocean as the United as the entire United States because we have good collection systems and they don't. So if you're going to solve it, that's you have to solve it in a place where government solutions are simply not even an option. So Plastic Bank, what they've done is they've created System and it's all on their all on a phone with an app that when somebody collects plastic, it it, they turn it in. It is marked. It is geolocated where that is plastic has been collected. They get paid in a cryptocurrency on the app because many of the people who are collecting it don't have bank accounts. So how do you pay them? So you need to pay them in cash, or so they pay them with a, a cryptocurrency, a credit then Plastic Bank takes the plastic, recycles it, and sells it to SC Johnson. So if you go and you buy a Windex bottle, it will say made with ocean-bound plastic. And if somebody says, hey, wait a minute, how do you know that this was truly ocean-bound? They can actually go to a dashboard online, and I've been to it, where you can see where all of the plastic was collected and actually prove here's where it came from. And, you know, it would, Likely would have washed into the ocean, I just think that's amazing
1: well, it's very interactive that's such a cool way to to you know if you care about these things, even something so small as being able to scan a QR code or whatever it is and actually engage with that is exciting like people it's it's making a game of of the of the goal, which is fun i mean people People like that.
2: Yeah. And, and, so it's, trans- it's, and it's refreshing. Completely transparent, mm-hmm. right? I mean, that's what you want. So, and we can do that because we have technology. And it's, and really, it's, I mean, it's very simple stuff. So, okay. So you say, okay, so you got people picking up trash on beaches. That's all very nice. But how much is that? So far, they have collected nearly 3 billion plastic bottles.
0: Wow. They that's-
2: have, <laughs> in total, they have collected about 60 million kilograms of plastic now there's a lot more work to be done but just for context there is another program out there that has created these big nets and they have these big things in rivers that collect um, trash as they come down the rivers and they're going to go out in the pacific ocean with these big boats and these big nets and, and try to collect the plastic that is in the ocean Now, that's a different target, right? It's not plastic on the beach. It's it's all stuff that's already in the ocean. So it's not a competitor. But nonetheless, they call themselves the biggest ocean plastic Mm -hmm. collection in the world. They have collected 1 million kilograms. So this simple little project that is based on cell phones with people picking up plastic in developing countries has done 60 million kilograms. Yeah. So I just it it gives you a sense of how powerful lots and lots of small efforts can be in the aggregate and how big an impact, positive impact for the
1: environment. Absolutely. And finding really healthy, positive ways to get people engaged and get them caring. The incentive. And, and the incentive, right? That's yeah. part of the free market solution is hey, we're gonna sell this. We're gonna make money by by selling it to make recycled bottles why not kick that back to the people and give them an incentive to pick up trash? I mean, you know, one of the things that we always say here on the Whiskey Bench is that, you know, environmental or caring about environmental policy and environmental, you know, taking care of the environment in general is a luxury of being a developed country. Right. You know, that's something that comes with, with time. Like, it is a luxury to think about these things and care about these things. So finding ways to kind of Gently encourage that idea in developing countries is just brilliant.
2: Well, and what's, and what's even better is, is that a lot of these, you know, if, if something's not economically sustainable, it's probably not environmentally sustainable. And that's the thing is, is that a lot of projects rely on government grants or, you know, charity or things like that. If you can create a business out of it, you can sell, you know, the plastic it's more likely to be sustainable over the long run. Let me give you another example in a developing country that is is another one of my favorites. There's a a group called E-Water that was uh, made up of a variety of folks, but some UN employees who would install uh, water pumps in developing countries. And what would happen to those water pumps, which were either installed by NGOs or by the government, is that after 18 months, almost half of them were broken. So then it's like, okay, so who fixes them? Do you go back to the NGO? Do you go to the government? You know, sometimes they would be broken for months. So what they did is they created an internet connected water pump. And they would charge people to use the pump about a penny a day. So you would sign up, you would get a little key fob like you used to start your car. Um, and every time you went up, you would touch the key fob. It would turn on, it would turn it off. So it'd measure how much water you're using so you have an incentive to conserve right you don't want to waste the water because you're paying for it so just that conservation is important but it used to be that you would they would lock the pumps so that people didn't waste the water and now with this system you can go anytime day or night so now it's accessible when you need it but the other thing is is that because there is a revenue stream when the pump breaks somebody's losing money (laughs) So, mm-hmm, they right. also have a dashboard online that shows literally every pump, and 98% of their pumps are working because when a pump breaks, somebody in the area goes and immediately fix it so that they don't lose money. And so, the time to fix a pump went from three months to a day.
1: <laughs> That's amazing.
2: Wow. Right. Yeah. yeah. And it's great for the people who need the water, it's great for women because. They were the ones who were hiking to the river, which the United Nations says that a kilometer, that if you go to a kilometer away, that's accessible. Well, if you carry <laughs> water a kilometer, that's a long way. That's <laughs> yeah, a long water's way. Water's heavy, yeah. And the other issue is uh, that um, if, you d- if the water is unclean or you don't know if the water is clean, then what you do is that you buy charcoal or you cut down trees to boil it. So right. Cooking food and boiling water is one of the major causes of deforestation in Africa. So now you don't have to cut down those trees because you know your water from the well is clean. The other alternative they have is to buy plastic bags of water. Well, if you don't have access to water, you certainly don't have access to trash collection. So what happens to those plastic bags? They get thrown around. So with just a simple technology, an internet connected water pump with they pay a penny a day, not only is it reliable water, not only is it reliable clean water, but it reduces pressures on deforestation and reduces plastic waste. It, it is just incredible to me how that one simple improvement uh, that seems so simple to all of us that, I mean, it, it, you know, we all have our phones and, and internet connected is not very difficult. And yet it is making a big
0: difference.
1: That is a great example. And that was actually one that I had highlighted. I think that's in chapter three of the book. And it's such a cool solution. And I don't know how much we want to get into this, but reading this this example of, of the eWater service was really great because you included a quote about how the NGOs said, you know, at first they thought maybe they would distribute rights to water to someone in the community. And that tends to lead to, you know, the eldest man having it and it kind of get divvied up. And then they thought, well, maybe the solution is we should force them to include women. And I love the example because it kind of takes away the, the political hot topic of of kind of pushing Western ideals on countries that really just need some good basic infrastructure like water. And instead of forcing, you know, women to be included, which could cause, you know, there's a whole chain of events that can happen. With From a cult-
0: forcing a cultural For- change. Right, a cultural yeah. change. Right.
1: Yeah. Like how do we find actually a, a, a helpful solution? And that and that's the, you know, capitalistic approach of like, yeah, okay. Everyone has the understanding of like, hey, this is a valuable service, it's easy, and everyone gets included, and then you don't deal with, you know, the bureaucracy within their own culture, with their hierarchies and all of this stuff. And I just I loved that example.
2: Well, and, and what you're doing really is using that sort of market-based approach, you are Mm -hmm. empowering the women because now they can get the water easily. They have time to do other things. They have, they can make money in other ways. And the story that was so great was, is that um, the woman who's the CEO um, of eWater Services was, you know, a UN employee. And she said that they, that the NGOs realized, oh, okay, what's happening is that the men are controlling the pumps and they're giving access to all of their buddies. So, mm-hmm. and it's the women who really are bearing the burden of not having uh, water. So then they said, okay, you have to have half of the board who controls the water is women. And she said, I remember she told me, she said, so I walked into one of these meetings and all the men were on chairs and all the women were on the floor. And it's like, so who's right. really in charge here? Right. So right. you think that you're, you're imposing your, Sort of idea of what should happen, of governance structures, of oh, it's equal, therefore it'll be equal. No, you can't do that. What you need to do is to give people, give the women power about how they can have access to the water. That's
1: what's meaningful and just. And that's what is. And and that is what is equal, right? It's the workaround. Like okay, yes, yeah,
0: yeah. Yeah. The tangible benefit.
1: Technology did that,
2: which is incredible. Yes.
0: Yeah. So, so we've kind of, I guess, we've sort of talked around a little bit, sort of why these political solutions fail, but I'd love for you to expand on that a little bit, you know, sort of why does, um, why do these political solutions fail and why does this, the kind of status quo of political environmentalism not deliver sustainable lasting uh, outcomes to better the environment?
2: Yeah. So it's, it's interesting because every time I talk about environmental policy, people say, well, look, that's, your little market stuff is very nice, but we just, if we just pass a law to do this, then we can get it done. And they don't ever stop to think that maybe it won't work and that there are reasons that the laws don't work. Um, so my first book that I wrote about 10 years ago was called Ecofads and it says about how the rise of trendy environmentalism is harming the environment. And what, I, what that book was about is about how we make environmental decisions and why they don't work. And there's a variety of reasons that the environmental policies that we make don't work very well. One of them is, is that results are difficult and they're down the road and they're often intangible but what is very tangible is the immediate sense of public approval and looking good for the environment so what you will see all the time when a bill is passed is that they have a bill big bill signing ceremony they all declare that they've won that we have you know conquered climate change or conquered deforestation or whatever (laughs) right right? it's like the program hasn't even started yet but they're already you know patting themselves on the back for passing the pieces of legislation And, you know, if you look at environmental scorecards, like how do we rate um, members of Congress or legislators, it's not, did the program work? It is, what did they vote for?
0: (laughs) So that's where the
2: benefits are for politicians is adopting policies that sound good.
1: Policies. Yeah, they're always <laughs> tied up into a beautiful little name, you know. Yes, yeah, right. The
0: Inflation <laughs> Reduction Act. Right, right. yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> right. Whether, whether it's true or not, right? Right.
2: Yep. Um, so that's where the benefits are. And then you can put it in your direct mailer at your next election and, get, you know, have all the environmental groups pet, you know, tell you what a, what a leader you are on the environment. So the incentives are to, to do things that look good, even if they don't work. But the other thing is, is that even if you're sincere, let's say you're the most sincere politician ever and you truly want things to work. You, it's hard to know sometimes what is going to work and what's not if you're not an economist, if you're not a scientist, um, if you're not a biologist. Right. You act, this is not your area of expertise. And what you get are people coming to you and telling you very different stories. You don't know how to sort out the truth sometimes. But what you do know is. What will be popular? So when you're yes. faced with two choices and you don't, know how to, you, don't have a, you don't know what to do, the tiebreaker for many politicians is what sounds good and what will make my constituents happy. So I'll do that. So again, the, the incentives are not aligned with environmental success. They're, envi- they're aligned with you know, political popularity. So after I wrote that book, I, was, I thought for a long time about how do we solve this? How do we solve the, the lack, the, the misaligned incentives and the bad information? And then I started to notice that people were doing really cool things with technology where they were basically putting the power in the hands of individuals who had the incentives and who had the information themselves, like a smart thermostat. So you have a smart thermostat, you want to save electricity, you set it, it uses artificial intelligence to tell you, okay, here's when you should be using, you know, here's, I'll adjust your house temperature so that it's the temperature you want at times when it's either inexpensive or the least expensive way to do it. Um, And the thing is, if you do those things and your bills go up, you feel the pain. Your incentives are directly aligned with saving energy. And you have the information because it's right there on your bill. So as much as you may want to pat yourself on the back for buying a smart thermostat, if it doesn't work out, you're going to see it and you're going to feel it. And that I think is the real power of these small technologies. You talked about democratizing information. The thing I talk about is democratizing environmentalism, giving the power to people who have that information and have those incentives so that they are aligned with good environmental outcomes. Uh, And I'm seeing more and more of that with these tools, and it's really exciting because it does overcome many of the problems that I've seen for the last 20 years that I've been working in environmental policy.
1: Well, and the more that these amazing technologies come out, and the more that people are frankly empowered by being given the opportunity to understand these things, get this information for themselves, the benefits for themselves, it encourages a marketplace of ingenuity, like to continue to do these things. And there's a lot of brilliant people out there, right? And if they see a great app that's making a great impact on something that they care about and also producing a revenue stream, I mean, people are going to always monopolize on that and they're going to, they're going to try their own thing. And, you know, some of it will land, some of it won't, but it's a very small impact you know, if someone sees a, a, a need and, and develops an app and, and tries to make something happen, if it doesn't work out, that's a pretty small blunder, right? It's yeah. not like a massive $60 billion government spending program. It's, yeah, the you costs know, are low.
0: You yeah, know,
1: relatively. someone's, I mean, it's unfortunate, you know, someone might lose a, a startup income, but it's like, it's such a small um, failure and you can bounce back from that and you can try something different, right? There's flexibility. You can pivot. Um, in an instance, right? You don't have the bureaucracy. It's just, we love this. This is amazing.
2: Yeah. But you, but in many ways, you want failure. You want people to yes, feel that right. failure because, that's um, how you, learn. you know, that's how you learn. And you say, oh, this didn't work because it didn't do this. We need to do this. Um, I, I interviewed folks from eBird from the, uh, the Cornell uh, Lab of Ornithology and initially, they created eBird, which is an app now where people are bird watchers can enter all the birds that they have seen. And they said, initially, we, we created it as a web page because we thought, you know, oh, birders will want to give us this information for science. But they said, once we, once we realized that we needed to make it attractive to the users and keep their life lists and do all these other things, it's like, that's when it took off. Um, and when we put it on cell phones, you know, it, it took off even more. But the key was making it work for the users and the consumers. And that's a very market oriented thing, right? Where it's not just, hey, give me the information I need. It's like, look, how can I cater to your needs? And then you give me the information. iNaturalist, another great app that allows people to identify plants and insects and animals that they see, was the same way, um, where they basically just created an app that said, We'll, we'll use artificial intelligence to, you know, so that you can identify what you see. They didn't have a plan for how they were going to use the data, but now the data, iNaturalist data set is one of the most commonly used data set for researchers in the world because it is so robust. But again, they didn't start with, you know, here's what we need. They started with, let's give, let's appeal to the market. Let's appeal to people and let, make it usable to them. And then we will get the data. That is fantastic, and that's that's where you see so many excesses uh, successes with that mindset.
0: Yeah, and it's much more um, to Tornus' point. It's much more agile, right? Like yeah. being able to to have that democratized knowledge um, and being able to to draw upon that societal wide information. You can you can make small moves and have small failures, which are a part of the learning process. Um, but it's much it's much easier to be um to sort of adapt to the new information you gather uh, than it is for a government bureaucracy to undo a three hundred and fifty billion dollar you know spending package, right? so right. it 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 and we have to have and for these, especially for environmental issues, I mean that's something that obviously is continuing continually evolving. Being flexible and adaptable is sort of key. So like a sluggish bureaucracy really just isn't equipped to handle those kinds of issues.
2: I can tell you a lot of government programs that have failed.
0: I can't
2: tell you you any politician who has admitted those government programs failed. (laughs) Right, right. Right. Uh, Because their incentive is to say, oh, no, no, it worked great. Um, So that's the problem is, is that if you disconnect The feedback, the accountability from the uh, results—you're in trouble. Um, By connecting people directly to environmental solutions, um, you you attach accountability to the results.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Accountability and again that incentive too, which is what you know sort of drives the forward progress. Um, So I had sort of a a quote I wanted to read from the book here in the final chapter um, from Darlene cavalier maybe yeah. i'm pronouncing her name correctly she's um she's the the founder of uh sci which is one of the the innovators that you talk about in the book um and i thought this this quote really stood out to me because i think it again kind of hits upon a, a common whiskey bench theme so i'll read that here uh quote the concurrence in the late 18th century of scientific and democratic revolutions was no coincidence they were integrally linked phenomena put into action by many of the same people at their best entrepreneurship and innovation follow in the same enlightenment tradition, refusing to take the world as we find it as the best the world can be. And one, I think that's just a beautiful observation. Um, but also I, I am interested to hear from you um, sort of why free societies are better equipped to innovate and advance our understanding of the world because that that's sort of how I interpreted that. Maybe I'm looking at it through the whiskey bench lens. Right, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but that's sort of what I heard, right? Like yeah. democratic revolutions concurred with scientific innovation for a reason because one sort of has that one has one equips the other to actually happen. So so what are your thoughts on that?
2: Yeah, I think that's exactly right. So the first I will just tell you sort of when you're writing a book, you try to figure out what do you want to stress and where do you want to put things? that quote is one of my favorite quotes in the whole book and it finishes the book.
1: Well, I wow, know yeah. that's the last page and
0: it's like, it's brilliant. Boom.
2: <laughs> which is great that it finishes on a strong note, but then I'm worried that people won't get to it because not everybody reads <laughs> to the end. And so there's a part of me that wanted to put that right up front because I just think it's brilliant, brilliant. but I just think it's such a good way to close the book. Darlene's really fantastic. She has, it's really interesting. Um, she started, as a Philadelphia 76ers cheerleader. Um, And now she is a professor at Arizona State University that has started the largest citizen science program and is on, I was named to the innovation and technology, I'm getting the committee wrong, subcommittee wrong, for America 250, which is the celebration of America's 250th birthday that's coming up in 2026. And so, you know, I just think she has a wonderful story and she's, uh, she's really great. And that quote, I think encapsulates it, but the, to your point, what you want, you know, what a democracy brings and what freedom brings is a diversity of ideas and an encouragement of coming up with all sorts of new ideas and trying new things. Um, And that's what we need. And so that goes hand in hand with innovation, with, you know, research, which with discovery, scientific discovery. And that's been the history. And one of my favorite stories is about how um, kings um, in various countries in the 17 and 1800s tried to ban coffee because People would get together and drink coffee and then they would talk about things and come up with crazy oh, revolutions. <laughs> right, um, right. <laughs> and it just shows you the spirit of when people get together and talk about ideas and think new thoughts um, that are revolutionary, they come up with great ideas. And I, and I just really like that spirit. And so that's really captured in that quote. Um, and that is the spirit I think that we need to have when we're trying to tackle these big environmental problems, this innovative uh, and hopeful spirit rather than the gloom and doom that you hear all the time.
1: Well, it's true. And, you know, part of this is, I mean, in, in this pursuit is, is being, you know, fearlessly honest, right? Not being afraid to, to say what needs to be said and pushing back on certain narratives, right? Like, you know, politicians not being willing to admit their mistakes and things like that. It takes a culture of people that are willing to say it doesn't matter what the science is saying, because sometimes the science is the politicians. Right. And
0: the capital S. science. The, yeah. Yes, yeah. exactly. Right? right. And it's right. like,
1: no, this is this is bad. We, we need to push back and maybe get some flack for it, which I think this book is great doing you know i think your work and your writing is is very honest right hopefully
0: you're, you don't get flack but yeah yeah <laughs> well,
1: but I like you're get... willing to you're willing to say some things that make people uncomfortable right right, right. <laughs> and and it has to be said and it's it's good yeah oh i, I will get flack i'm ready for that
2: <laughs> but it's, uh, you know that's part of the discussion um, Right. <laughs> but but yeah let, you know and the other thing is to the point on the science i remember when i worked at the Washington State Department of Natural Resources. And we were dealing with forest protections for a little bird, a marine bird called the marbled murrelet. And so I walked down the hall to a biologist and, and she um, worked on the marbled murrelet and she and she showed me this giant book that she had created um, about the marbled murrelet and how you survey for them, all these things. She had spent much of her career on it. And I said, all right, what do we do? How do we protect the marbled murrelet? And she said, well, what you need to do is to identify their habitat, protect that habitat, put it off limits to logging or any disturbance. And then you need to put a buffer around that habitat so that you don't make a mistake. And then in some cases, they even argued that we should put a buffer around the buffer. But I mean, it was like, <laughs> here's how you deal with this, right? And, and, and she, you know, she was a scientist. This is what she studied. So then I walked down the hall to a forester and I said, all right, how do we deal with the marbled merlet? How do we deal with these forests? He says, look, forests are not static. They're dynamic. They change all the time, right? This is the natural pattern of fire and decay and other things like that. And if you just treat them as static, it's not good. So what you need to do right, yes. is you're going to do harvests. You need to mimic the natural disturbances and try to do things like that. We've taken fire out and so we need to, we can replace it with harvest and other things like that. The forests need to be dynamic. You can't just start setting places aside as protected area. So That's not how know. the world works. Right. So I ask yes. people, okay, so which of those, right? Both of those were scientists. One was a biologist, one was a forester, but they're both scientists. So what's the science? And the right. answer is they're both science. Both yeah. of them are giving me good science, but both, but the science in both cases is also filtered through risk tolerance, um, mm-hmm. right? The the biologist has very low risk tolerance for impact of the bird, right? This is a bird she studied her whole life. She does not want to kill birds. The forester has very low risk tolerance for doing things that harm forest ecosystems and the health of those forests that plays in. Both of them are telling me science, good science, that is backed up. So when people say, oh, you need to follow the science, capital T, capital S, you know, there is no such thing. Decisions are informed by science, must be informed by science, but science does not make the decisions. Economics, incentives, cultural values, all sorts of things play a role in how we manage resources. And it's not just a scientific
1: decision. Right. And this is a great example, again, in your book of, you know, being environmentalists, especially from, you know, the, the natural history side of it and, and animal species, having to have some very difficult conversations. One of the examples you give is salmon popul- populations in Puget Sound and the natural instinct being, oh, well, clearly it's humans that are doing it, you know, the oil, right? Oil spills. And you point out very accurately that, okay, I mean, I guess that could happen, but like, you know, all of the data and, and trends say that that's actually probably not going to be the issue. And really it's just probably overpopulation of seals. And then you have to have the uncomfortable conversation that people don't like of maybe we need to manage seal populations. If we care about the salmon, like it might happen. And it reminded me of a a biology professor I had when I was doing uh, my undergrad in biology. And, uh, he was He was an environmentalist and he, it was a conservation class. We were talking about um, various endangered species and and how to distribute resources and how to tackle this and uh, I remember everyone was appalled, and me and my buddy ended up kind of chuckling. He's like, "Look at the red panda, for example." He's like it's cute, it's charismatic, you know it's got these we love them you know the, the zoo in Billings, Montana has you know several red pandas, so everyone you know loves them and he's like you know, sometimes, like, it doesn't matter how cute and charismatic a creature is, like, you have to kind of ignore them. Like, you got to focus your efforts sometimes. And he's like, it's a hard reality. Like, maybe the maybe the red pandas have to be put on the back burner for a species that is more, you know, uh, pressing of an issue. And yeah. People don't like to hear that, and I get it, but...
2: <laughs> well, and so I sit on the Puget Sound Salmon Recovery Council in Washington State. So, making sure salmon survives, like... Big to me, it's something Mm -hmm, I work on a lot. Um, So you know, it's easy to blame humans, and there and humans have caused a lot of pollution that are doing harm to salmon. But uh, there was a salmon conference uh, last year, two years ago, where they there was a whole long list of things that are killing salmon in Puget Sound, and they asked salmon scientists to put a check next to each one of them um, that they thought was serious. And the number one thing, 99% of the scientists chose overpopulation of seals and sea lions.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Now, yeah. right. how, many, how many newspaper articles have you seen about that? How many TV stories? Right. right? I mean, people don't like yeah. to talk about what it takes to reduce the population of seals and sea lions. But right. there is very broad agreement that that mm-hmm. is a big problem.
0: Right. Yeah, it's much easier to blame. Uh, Again, sort of pointing back to, like, what are the incentives driving these decisions? And what are the the sort of cultural trends driving these decisions? It's more popular for a politician to say evil capitalist oil companies are killing these, right. you know, salmon or diminishing the populations, not the charismatic seal. Right. <laughs> and maybe we have to start harvesting them to reduce their population. Yeah, that's that. Uh, That's not a winning political argument. <laughs>
1: No, Whoa. it's not, right? You know, sitting on, you know, I'm the politician. My platform for my office is we're going to kill seals, We're right? going to kill it's,
0: seals. Yeah, yeah no, exactly. Nobody wants and to hear then that. And you get
1: smeared as the seal murderer, right? <laughs> right. You know, it's, it's a challenge. You know, we see this in, in everything, not even just, you know, environmentalism, but.
0: Yeah, across the board. Yeah, exactly. Um. So we've, I think we've done, and you've done a wonderful job in your book and in this conversation sort of explaining how these these small actions can have a cumulative impact. Um, but, and you devote a chapter in your book, which I appreciate to kind of talking about what might be sort of the, the challenges that stand in the way of this really flourishing and solving bigger environmental problems. Right. So I'd love for you to expand on that. So what do you think are sort of some of the obstacles that stand in the way of what you call uh, smartphone environmentalism?
2: So... As much as I like to think that I'm 100% right and I'm a genius, I know that's not right. the case. <laughs> um, so I have a chapter in there talking about the problems um, with my arguments um, and how I try to address them, but recognizing that there are problems and recognizing that people are going to be skeptical. Um, one of the challenges, and this is the challenge that I get all the time when I you know, I have lots of conversations with people and I very excitedly tell them about this idea and then they kind of squint at me and go, that's cute, but that's not going to do anything, right? I mean, that's too small. Um, we need to do much more than your little small things can do. Um, so we've sort of addressed that in, you know, given some examples of how big these things can scale up with the ocean plastic and things. So I addressed right. that in there. Another issue is, um, you know, uh, uh, cybersecurity. Um, you know, what I'm asking people to do is to, I'm saying look there's there's these gadgets um, I have them in my house so I have something in my um, electrical box that literally tells me at any minute um, how much electricity I'm using it's called sense and it uses artificial intelligence to say um, you know okay here's how much electricity you're using here's the appliances um, that are using it uh, I'm looking I'm trying to find it right now on my phone um, and and it helps me um figure out where I can save electricity. But the more of these things we put in our house, the more information we're providing to other people.
0: Right, And the it makes more, you vulnerable.
2: And the more likely people can hack them and use them in all sorts of nefarious ways. right? Um, and so that I think um, makes people nervous. And so I address that. I talk about the things that people are doing to reduce the risk of cyber attack. Um, and one of the points that I make is, is one area that I have frequent disagreements with people uh, on the right, and I am one, um, is that I say, hey, you know, look, here are these smart thermostats that allow you to give you incentives that will pay you so that you don't use electricity during peak demand hours, which is most expensive and also carbon intensive. Um, and so you can do voluntary programs where they'll either increase or reduce your. Temperature in your house for a couple of by a couple of degrees during this period of time, and then they'll pay you to do that. And people will say, "Oh, I don't like that. They're controlling me. You know, I don't like mm. I don't like feeling controlled." And one, one thing I say is, "Well, it's voluntary. You don't have to do it." But second, guess what? Government controls you already with your electricity, right? <laughs> right. Uh, well, <laughs> yeah,
1: exactly. You- and you don't have the option. It's not voluntary. Right. Exactly. <laughs> and we're, we're big fans of, and here we're huge fans of voluntarism. And, like, the idea that you can enter a contract with a company and say, hey, yes, I'm going to give you the right to control my life.
0: (laughs) To control my life. Right? Very small. (laughs) To provide me data. Right.
1: And there's a benefit from it, right? So it's, it's a nice, it's a very healthy contract, right? So it is interesting to see.
2: But but people don't like it, right? I mean, people are people are freaked out by government, mm-hmm. you know, or utilities or other things control, right? Reaching into your home and controlling your right. smart. Uh, they you want know, to share that. Yeah. I get that. I get that. It's a little odd, and it, it takes a while for people to get used to. But in California, we just had an energy crisis where they mm-hmm. were where right. there were blackouts, and there were some people whose thermostats were automatically reduced, and they couldn't override it in order to save electricity. Um, yeah. And they had signed up for it. And some of them had forgotten they signed up for they got, sort of got mad, but they were getting paid to do that. But the alternative is there are blackouts. Yeah. So what would you rather? <laughs> would you rather be uncomfortable by a few degrees for a short period of time or have blackouts? So I think the sense that, well, I don't like the government reaching into my home and controlling my th- smart thermostat. While I understand it, the alternative is much worse. Um, and at least with the voluntary program, you get some benefit, you get some payment for it. So, but that's a that's I mean I make these arguments to people, and then they still kind of squint at me and go, "Yeah, I don't like it." So I mean I <laughs> that is a that is a, a barrier to overcome. And so there are a number of things that I think are going to take time. Or that we're simply going to have to change, right? We're going to have to adapt. People may say, "No, I don't like that. You're going to have to find a different way to do this that makes me comfortable. OK? Well, fortunately, we have the technology, or we have the creativity to try to address those concerns, um, rather than just impose a one-size-fits-all and just you know say, "Well, too bad, tough luck, you're going to deal with it." Um, so that is the power of those technologies. Um, And sometimes when you can't make people feel comfortable, you, you know, to make it effective, you have to address their concerns.
0: Yeah. And, and I think, I mean, those are good counterpoints you offer. And, And I think too, that we just increasingly are living in an interconnected world where we have lots of our personal information that's available electronically and it can be hacked. And whether it's a thermostat or it's, our banking information. Yes. Um, that vulnerab- vulnerability is sort of built into our mod- modern lifestyle. And it's kind of something we can't escape. So. Well,
1: and it goes back to what you're saying earlier, as far as collecting your, your science among disciplines and having that risk reward um, conversation and saying, hey, this is a great technology. There's a lot of good, but there is a risk associated with it. And, you know, there's risk and there's benefit. And you have to weigh it out for yourself. Yeah, they're always, they're always just trade-offs. like anything, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that's the thing people have to realize there's always trade-offs. And again, it's always marketed as, oh, there is no trade-off. Yeah. <laughs> right. And, and it, you have to have that, you know, it's good to have these conversations. And this is why we're so happy to have you is to encourage people to, you know, open up their mind a little bit and say, hey, you know what? There is no perfect solution for everything. And, you know, with data collection and these decentralized apps, it's it's such a beautiful thing because you know, all around the world is, is diverse. But even with just within the United States, I mean, geopolitically, the country is incredible. There's so much diversity in the United States, just in ecosystems. And and there's no way that that a federal bureaucratic approach could ever be successful. I mean, even in my own state, Montana, or your state, Washington, like 50 miles down the road, the solution in that terrain is going to be different than what's right for Bozeman, Montana, you know, or Puget Sound versus maybe further south, you know, in Oregon, even very similar ecosystems.
0: Yeah. Having localized solutions informed by local decision is, is typically always better than, yes. than something that's kind of a blanket solution. Yeah. Um, well, we have so enjoyed, reading your book and talking to you um and i think you're doing important work um yes. you know i i obviously you know me through perk um and you know we're we're champions of free market environmentalism but there's still more work to be done to get people to know about free market <laughs> environmentalism yeah. to sort of wrap their heads around that concept yes. um and i think it's really beautiful your book is very timely because um we've we really have this this incredible access to technology that obviously is un- unprecedented um and sort of throughout human history uh and and it really equips us with a greater ability to have an impact than than at any other point in in history or you know sort of human existence um and i think that when you look at like the modern kind of the doomist popular uh environmental perspective A lot of what they talk about is anti-human and a lot of what they suggest as solutions um, really is is about turning back the clock and sort of destroying civilization. I mean, that's kind of a harsh way to put it, but that's kind of what it's about. It's about like uh, degenerating civilization and like taking us backwards. And so it's I think your book has a very optimistic message that like we can actually we can capitalize on our wealth. We can capitalize on our on technology, on our ability to innovate, and we can put it to good use. We can put markets to work for conservation for the environment. Um, and it doesn't have to be. We can break this kind of this perception that that prosperity is is what drives environmental degradation. No, in fact, prosperity is what can lead us to improve environmental quality. Yes. Um, so I think there's there's a really beautiful message within your book. Um, and I guess we should maybe wrap up with some fun questions. Yeah, for Todd?
2: Oh, I, I just want to, before we move on to the fun. Yeah, sure, <laughs> sure, sure. Fun, yeah. but I want to say look, Perk's work has been very inspirational to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, for, I'm sure you've talked about it, but, you know, for people who want to understand the alternatives, sort of a top down approach, Perk is, is yes. fantastic. But what I see, small technology is doing is taking the, the economics of people like Eleanor Ostrom um, that, you know, Perk does talk so much about and her the discussion that she has of people collaborating and working together to solve environmental problems. And sort of when she talks about it, you know, in her great books, it's, it's a limited number, right? Because there's only so many people you can negotiate with. Well, now with small technology and connectivity, you can expand that. And now you can take, you know, solutions that Eleanor Ostrom talked about and expand it to very large audiences. And I think that's what's exciting is is that, you know, she won a Nobel Prize in economics for her ideas for recognizing um, these opportunities to solve these resource problems. And technology is taking those ideas and expanding them beyond, you know, the limits that we thought existed and allowing us to solve problems that's that for a long time we thought only government could and now we realize that that's not the case and that in fact groups of people do better than government using these technologies and i just think that's really exciting so this book is um, based a lot on you know uh, what i learned uh from uh, scholars at perk and and uh, great economists and and is and is proving the potential and the really the the power of those ideas and taking them even farther than I think a lot of people expected.
0: Yeah, that's incredible. Yes. Um. Well. Now fun. Well, one. Yes. Now fun. Actually, I kind of want to throw one more point out there. Yeah. Just about, I mean,
1: I, again, if you're okay with yeah, a, yeah. Little, a little extra time this like evening, You could go a little over. Yeah.
0: Um, but just something that we've we've been talking about, but you know that last point you just made kind of drew this to the top of mind that you know Mises' knowledge problem, his point about Ludwig von Mises, the economist, point about why socialism fails, and that you know nobody has a monopoly on knowledge; knowledge is dispersed throughout society. Therefore, central planners cannot possibly make efficient decisions about how to manage society because they don't have all of the knowledge. And the best way for that knowledge to be communicated is through market signals, through prices, through exchange, through voluntary action. Um, That is exactly what this book talks about. It's harnessing, it's recognizing that knowledge uh, is dispersed throughout society. and And it's brilliant individual people figuring out tools to harness that knowledge and communicate it. Um, in a way that's impactful, um, and that's just well, it speaks to a whiskey bench theme that we talk about all yes, the time. Absolutely, but you know, it's a- it's simple and it's brilliant.
1: Yes, and it's so it's so uh, hopeful because the the main or not the main the loudest narrative is the doom and gloom narrative of the world is going to end and we need to take these ridiculously dramatic steps or. We're all doomed, and this is this is the beautiful counter to it. Of no, like it's these small, simple things compiled, you know, death by a thousand cuts, but in in the good sense, right? Like <laughs> these little these little solutions are all adding up, um, and it's not it's not the end of the world. There's great progress being made, right? Like I think people don't get to see the side that this book illustrates of all of the great things happening, the things that we should be hearing about. And that's, I mean, it's just chock full of just amazing examples. And as I've been reading it, I'm like, how did I never know about this? How haven't I learned about this? And I would say Kat and I are fairly connected and and, and interested in this, right? And and still you point out these great things where I'm like, I wish I want everyone to know about these. It's, it's exciting, right? It, it gets me pumped up and hopeful and...
0: And I think we're reaching a point, too, just as at least at least in the West, I think we're reaching a point where we're sort of we're oversaturated with the doom message um, and we're getting we're I would hope people are starting to connect the dots that simply giving politicians more power and money doesn't actually result in anything tangible. There are no like real benefits to the environment or, you know, these solu- these problems aren't actually solved. Um, so I think. You know, I actually think your timing is great, Todd, with this book, because we're people are ready for a different message, I think. Um, And it's 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 time to sort of shift that perspective. And and I think, again, I think people are getting sort of sick of the doomist message and um, they're ready for for an optimistic message that has real tangible results um, rather than simply constant headlines of. You know the sky is falling, and therefore we have to tax you more and go into you know build our debt. So there's there are better alternatives, which your book highlights beautifully.
2: Well, writing the book was good for my mental health because um, you know I work in public policy, and mm-hmm. it's it's a little rough. <laughs> there's a there's yeah. a lot of days where the politics really can get you down, but there were plenty of days where I would be feeling bad, and then I would go and I would do an interview with one of these folks they would tell me the really cool things that they were doing and i would feel and i would instantly feel better because i would realize yes. that it's not doom and gloom but there's a lot of really amazing things going on so right. it, it it made me feel better.
0: fantastic beautiful well we drank a bee's knees tonight per your re- request which is a fabulous cocktail um and i think we're curious are you a cocktail guy what's your favorite cocktail what do you like to drink?
2: I am. A, well, I work in politics. Uh, <laughs> right. Uh, Fair enough. I have a friend who's a campaign fundraiser, and she says, I don't trust anybody who doesn't drink. So, um, <laughs> so yeah, I, you know what? Um, you know, it varies, of course. Um, sometimes a dirty martini with blue cheese olives is just fantastic. Ooh. Um, nice. um, I, you know, sometimes I just will do a simple old fashioned. I like whiskey, um, which is why I specifically wanted to be on with you in this podcast.
1: Um,
0: (laughs) uh,
2: You know, I like a good Manhattan. That's actually probably when push comes to shove. That's probably my favorite. Um, So, you know, it's it's the other thing. It's fun is to try to find good local um, distillers. Um, So the gin I used actually in this and the bee's knees tonight was from Heritage Distilling, which is um, a local distiller where I live. And there's another uh, distiller that a a friend uh, took me to near Spokane called Two Loons when they make a great gin. Really, it's a small Mm. store, but they Mm. really make a good gin.
1: Um, I like that you're a gin guy. We love gin on the whiskey bench. (laughs) And uh, tonight, our our Bees Knees has uh, White Lady Gin, which is from Missoula, which is just down the road from us. So, again, support the local distilleries. Yeah.
2: So, and then I, the other one I like is um, I, from time to time, I like a good Sazerac Um, and and I really, I like the absinthe and not everybody likes the absinthe, but I do. And, and speaking of local distillers, I found a very small distiller in Woodenville Washington, where there's a a few of them along with some good wineries. And it it literally is just this guy in this, like this giant garage, uh, sort of like a warehouse and he makes it there and it's, was really good. So I do like a good Sazerac as well.
0: Nice. Nice.
1: That's amazing. Well, the man, after our own heart, like we appreciate it. You know, again, kind of just to, to hopefully close up by our listeners and us getting to know you a little better. This is an important question, I think, for everyone. What are you reading right now?
2: Uh, I'm actually reading, it's funny. Um, I'm I reading Chris Thierwald's book um, about the media and sort of how. To get the media away from being sort of clickbaity and back to newsy,
1: mm-hmm. um,
2: I mm. really uh, like that. The next book that I have on my list is actually very exciting to me. It is the biography of Karl Lagerfeld, who was the famous oh, designer of Chanel. Um, and I cool. Wow,
0: that seems like a departure from it your does. normal <laughs> reading list. <laughs> yeah, um,
2: it, it is a departure in some ways, but I am. Um, when he was alive, I heard a couple of interviews with him talk about his design, sort of how he comes up with his designs and sort of his creativity and you know as a writer and other things like that, you want to know sort of you know how you get inspiration because it's it's hard mm-hmm. to write and it's hard i mean you know and so I was interested in his thoughts on that. He was really interesting, and the thing that he said that struck me was. Whenever I try to design, whenever I sit down and I want to design something, it never works out, right? I have to, mm-hmm. it sort of has to come mm-hmm. to me. And uh, I have certainly felt that um, where when you try to force writing, it doesn't come, but when you just, there are moments when it just sort of comes to you. And so I just thought that was really interesting, his creative process. Um, I thought he was sort of an interesting and irreverent guy in lots of different ways. Yeah, <laughs> he, right. he has a great quote <laughs> that I won't get right. But he says, you know, fine, be politically correct, you know, you know, do what you want, care about other people. But if everybody's politically correct, that is just the end of interesting discussions. He's like, (laughs) this is so oppressive, and it's just the end of being interesting. And I just thought I thought that was hilarious that he said that. It's just because it's true in so many ways. So I think he's a a super interesting guy. So I'm excited to read his biography.
0: Yeah, you know that again, I think I think we are reaching a crescendo culturally where we've kind of maxed out on our tolerance for a lot of this uh, intolerable, uh, oppressive (laughs) (laughs) ideas that were sort of thrust upon us from like climate policy that doesn't actually solve anything to, you know, woke ideology, not to get down that road, but just like there's we're kind of suffocated culturally. And I think we are reaching a point where we're People are going to be, I think there's going to be like a renaissance of lots of, of diversity of ideas and opinions that are going to be accepted, right? So again, I think your book is very timely in that regard. One other really important question for you, Todd. Yeah. How much honey do you consume in a single week? <laughs> uh,
2: a lot more than when I, before I was a beekeeper. So uh, right. <laughs> <laughs> so it's funny. I am not one of those people who needs heirloom to me. And, you know, locally grown, I definitely like food. I like to cook and I like good food, but I just wasn't one of those people. But I will say that local raw honey is fantastic. And I used to, when I used to have a small business that I, I would send Christmas gifts to my clients like you do. And I would send them a bottle of wine and I, you know, a few people would send me nice little notes or call me commentators. So one year I had an unbelievable honey. I mean, I had more honey than I knew what to do with. I had (laughs) gallons and gallons of it. So I was like, well, I'm just going to bottle it up and send it off to my clients. And virtually every single one of them called me and said, this is the best honey I have ever had. Uh, This is fantastic. Um, I still have people who every year, even though they're not my clients anymore, will, like, reach out to me and request it. <laughs> so. Um, <laughs> oh, it's amazing. Yeah. So it's, it is really qualitatively better than the honey that you get at the store. And it is worth, I think it is one of those things that is worth paying for. And so, like, I admit I'm biased. I'm a beekeeper. Okay, fine. But, I, <laughs> uh, you know, based on the feedback I get, I just think it's fantastic. Right
0: on. And good for you. Yes, yeah. exactly. I bet you don't have bad allergies.
2: <laughs> you know, there's I I didn't have allergies before, but my wife did and she absolutely swears that the raw honey helps with her allergies. So
0: Totally. Uh, that is not yeah.
2: scientific as much as we've talked about science tonight. That is not scientific, but she swears by it, and if my wife says it's true, I believe it.
0: I'll believe it too. <laughs> yes. That's that's so wonderful. <laughs> oh. Well, and how did you how did you uh, hear about Whiskey Bench? I know we kind of tangentially know each other just because of Perk and our connection there. And you've done some good work with Perk um, and published some research with us. But it, how, did, how exactly did you discover Whiskey Bench? Because we're, we're small time. It's yeah, only been yeah. two years. You're our first proper guest. <laughs> so. I
2: wasn't aware that there are people who didn't know about Whiskey Bench.
0: Oh, oh, fantastic. oh well, thank you. Great. Well, thank you, Todd. <laughs>
2: <laughs> no, I mean, it's just, yeah, it's, I mean, I, you know, follow you and you, I looked one time and you, like on your bio or something and had it. And I was like, what is this? I've got it. I've got to check this out. And it had the name <laughs> right Whiskey in it. And so, and I knew you and, and your work. And so the combination of those two things meant that I had to check it
0: out. Right on.
1: Well, wonderful. We Good thank stuff. you for that. And we're very grateful and excited that you reached out to us and, and gave us your time this evening. It's been a great conversation. I hope that maybe we can have a conversation again at some point. And, of course, if you ever find your, your way to Bozeman, Montana, you've, you've got a place to come have a cocktail any day of the week. I'd love to, to love to share one with you in person someday. Well. Uh, I want to encourage everyone listening to seriously consider checking out his book. We're going we're gonna to share all the information to our listeners and everything to, to find a place to buy this, but it's so approachable. There's so many great examples. I mean, I had my mind blown many times, like, wow, this is just it's just fun. It's interesting. And it's I think anyone can get through this book and get a lot out of it, even if you're not particularly invested or interested in this topic. I think there's something in here for everyone. And so I want to encourage people to to definitely check it out. And I know you can get it you can get it on Amazon. On Amazon. Yep. Yep. Target, Barnes & Noble, probably all those similar retailers. Um,
0: and we'll have links in the show notes for people to directly purchase it. And it's officially available November 1. November is that correct? 1st.
2: That's right. Yep.
0: Okay. All right. We're approaching it. Beautiful. Good stuff.
1: Outside of the book, Todd, where can people best find your work and keep up with you and what you're doing?
2: So I work, uh, my day job is is that I'm the environmental director at the Washington Policy Center. So you can go to WashingtonPolicy.org. We talk a lot about Washington state politics, um, but a lot of the things that we deal with in Washington are um, elsewhere in the country. And so you you will probably find something that applies to where you live. You can follow me on Twitter at, at WAPolicyGreen. And I tweet mostly about this stuff, but occasionally about um food and the mariners um, <laughs> right on. those are the best places to find me.
0: fantastic and we'll again we'll have we'll have links in the show notes for our listeners to check out the book directly and to follow you on twitter directly as well
1: so again todd thank you so much for your time this evening it's been an absolute pleasure we hope to see you again and uh thank you for all your work it's it's enjoyable and i I hope people will explore this it
2: was very fun to talk with you
0: wonderful we'll do a virtual cheers yes (laughs) we always cheers at the end of our episode so So we'll we'll do a little one two three cheers 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 to you Media Network, artist-owned podcasts by normal people in normal places.